Greetings, dear ones. Thanks for being here with me. This is Jill, and it's Wednesday, and it's K9360 on KZUM. Thanks to those who were supporting us for our little fundraising project. Thanks to those who might have come out to the weekend dog shows. I hope you enjoyed yourself and saw some things you've never seen before. Um, and... Uh, I can't imagine there's any place I'd rather spend my weekend than at a dog show. So I hope you enjoyed it if you came out uh, and maybe you want to get involved someday, right? Um, all right, so thinking about uh, the weekend, my experience, and what I could share with you about that, um, one of my longtime dog training students is training her first competition dog and we meet every so often uh, and get together to train and recently um, after not having the greatest weekend in the rings at uh, Nebraska Kennel Club she said this is hard and I had to laugh because she's right. It is It is a little, it can be hard. Sometimes teaching and training is hard but with practice it gets easier. And that made me think, well, how does it get easier? What do I mean when I say it gets easier? And so I think I'll share with you, right? Think out loud in your presence. One way in which training gets easier is that the more dogs you train, the more you come to know not only what the final picture looks like, but also what, what each incremental step along the way to creating that picture looks like. You can learn the steps to teach, what they look like in progress, and the order in which they can best be taught. The actual teaching of those steps will vary in terms of what works best from one dog to the next and according to your growth and evolution as a trainer. It comes with experience, but experience isn't all that's necessary. There is a world of difference between training dogs for 20 years and training the same dog 20 times. Another way in which training gets easier is you learn to read and listen to the dog better. You develop two-way communication so you learn to see what they need from you in order to give you what you want to get from them. You also learn from dog to dog what issues need to be addressed right away as they indicate miscommunication or confusion and are likely to cause big problems later. You learn which things you can let slide as they will either take care of themselves or they are actually non-issues masquerading as issues and that treating them as real issues will cause some real problems. And you learn, and I think this is a biggie from the perspective of a handler, that dogs will plateau on certain exercises, doing them fine for a while, and then all of a sudden look at you as if to say, what language are you speaking now? There's nothing you did wrong, just a normal part of the learning process. Some exercises will break from time to time. This is especially true in utility, and part of the fun and the experience comes from learning how to fix them. Inexperienced trainers tend to panic or catastrophize when exercises break or beat themselves up over perceived errors in training. But the dog will come back and be fine as long as the trainer doesn't cause extra or additional problems in trying to fix what really isn't broken, just temporarily mislaid. 
inexperienced trainers. Oh, sorry. I just told you that. But here's another wrinkle. There's a lot of debate in dog training circles about why certain things won't work. And here you can insert your method, your approach, your attitude, or some training tool. From my perspective, the trainers engaged in these debates are generally talented, insightful, logical, and efficient. They get results from their dogs, and I don't really detect a maliciousness or an envy or an ulterior motive. Sometimes I sense the essence of the problem is captured in Henry Ford's classic observation, that if he had asked people what they wanted, they would have replied, faster horses. Ford had a different vision. So did a lot of people. Thomas Edison, Marconi, Bell, Jacobs, I'm sorry, Jobs, Branson. Science is fine, but the art of dog training isn't simply a matter of innovative visionaries defying conventional wisdom. So how else does dog training get easier? You have to start with an attitude of trying to make things happen and not one of explaining why they can't happen. I started a new class recently, and when the students saw what the, <coughs> excuse me, graduation exercise is gonna look like in 10 weeks, I heard a lot of, well, that'll never happen. You can't start there, you can't. And you can't allow failure or warnings of others to dissuade you. Your talents are different from theirs, and you have to be willing to fail in good cause and then simply begin again. Somewhere in a keeper file, I have a quote from a dog trainer and teacher named Linda Kautsky. Linda's response to a discussion thread on the internet about how to achieve real results with your dog was to argue that it's really a matter of choice. Here's the quote from Linda. She says, I hate to sound that simplistic, but it's true. The best trainers take responsibility for the dog they've produced. The best trainers are caring and patient. They're dedicated and determined. They're on a quest for knowledge that never ends. They have an extensive toolbox. They're highly creative. They make choices based on logic and understanding, not based on their ego. The best trainers don't quit even if the fix takes years to achieve. They admit their mistakes and they learn from them. The best trainers grace our competitive rings every weekend with performances we all admire. They love the sport and their dogs. They deserve to win. If a dog is wonderful in practice and match, but goes to pieces in trials, the fix for that always starts with the human end of the leash. Right? So, let's dive a little deeper. I'm going to switch gears ever so slightly because there's a story I have to tell you. Right, we've discussed here on K9360 in the past what to do when children are present in a household and the adults in the household are sort of determinedly or intentionally or even metaphorically uh, generally deaf, dumb, and blind to the real and immediate danger posed by the family dog to the safety and well-being of those kids. And when these conversations come up in social media spaces, child protective services or something similar is frequently referenced by folks who 
see the risks both for the kids and for the dogs. But what do we do when the metaphorically deaf, dumb, and blind are administrators in a senior living center? Because here's what happened. Not so long ago, I had a new student person show up in the second week of a puppy kindergarten class. The puppy she brought to class was a golden retriever who's not quite six months old. Curly, they called her. Curly was presented by a woman who identifies herself as having procured the puppy along with her littermate sister to act as the resident dog in an Alzheimer's wing of a smaller senior living center here in Lincoln. Initially, Curly was to have been living with a nurse and coming and going from the facility, but the nurse had reneged on the deal, and since the pup, quote, seemed to be doing so well in the uh, nursing home, senior center, she was living there full-time at four months old. Four months old. Have you ever met a four-month-old golden retriever puppy? No one on site is identified as solely responsible for her care and training, So she's just running loose in this place, and predictably, she is stealing personal effects from resident rooms. She's jumping unannounced into the laps of sleeping Alzheimer patients. She's biting. She's chewing. She's having housebreaking accidents, and she's causing general mayhem. As a four-month-old golden retriever puppy would do. The solution says the genius who came up with this bright idea, standing in front of me, is to pick up the puppy on Tuesday evenings at 6 o'clock, bring her to a puppy class for an hour, and then return her to the facility till next week because she clearly needs training and all. I, you may already anticipate where this is going. I only spluttered for a second or two, and then I confess I, I launched... I'm sure you could hit the highlights as well or better than I did, but when I paused to take a breath before continuing, the self-same genius made a face at me, what my grandmother would have called a puss, as in, take a look at that puss. And she said to me, well, what do you want me to do now? It's not as if we can just take her out now. My reply was something along the lines of, take her out now and train her and see if she develops into a suitable candidate or wait until she chews the eyebrows off somebody's great-grandpa and then make yourself available to watch a veterinarian take her out permanently while you're waiting for your subpoena for the part you played in this whole big train wreck, 10-car pileup of a mess. And I ultimately referenced the necessity for someone in the process to actually act as the dog's advocate because if you continue to set this perfectly nice puppy up to fail at the same time you continue to tell me how much you just love dogs I'm not sure what else there is to do I did call around the next day and learned that there had been multiple dogs in three years consigned to this unit the earlier dog or dogs removed because Alzheimer patients were beating and kicking the puppies. Right? I need, we need to know about advocacy, right? 
So Child Protective Services isn't interested in this one. I'm not sure who is. The people I spoke to don't seem to answer to anyone directly, but I'm sure there is some agency concerned with the maintenance of great-grandpa's eyebrows and the requirement that they remain exactly where they are on grandpa's forehead. I'm equally concerned about the safety and well-being of this puppy who really does deserve better than what she's getting at the hands of a pair of sisterly do-gooders who didn't bother to do their homework. And when I shared this story on one of my private training forums, I got this in reply. It's called Adult Protective Services in most areas and is usually under the supervision of the same agency as Child Protection Services. As an educational component, I wonder if it might be possible to forward the administrator something from the therapy dog literature. Chris Butler's book has some stuff on this. And I have colleagues who have some other writings about what a facility therapy dog should be like. She continued, the attorney general's office is in charge of abuse in nursing homes in most areas as well. So I'll just leave that with you, right? So we're going to shift gears one more time. We're kind of sticking with the theme of training, I think. And a comment I saw on my professional trainers forum followed by a detailed overview of a 10-day path to getting a dog to be reliable off-leash. So in the time we have left, let me see if I can sketch this out for us. Um, Someone wrote, Trainer Minnesota wrote, we have a terrible lack of available open natural space for us to move freely in, but also of dog-friendly public areas to visit. she said how today's she said how let me try again today's dog owners not only lack the time to achieve off-leash reliability with their dogs but they lack the necessary understandings of what the dog is to even begin the journey she writes dogs are rarely obtained anymore for utilitarian reasons americans get dogs as status symbols or in misguided attempts to provide companionship to children who are already overbooked with after-school activities and would really rather play with a uh, with their screen than with a dog anyway, and to take the place of human relationships that don't fulfill them. She said, you can achieve off-leash reliability with a dog, but you'll never get there with a status symbol or a child substitute. And another trainer in the group this is a couple moves in the conversation later, noted that she had gotten a three and a half pound Yorkshire Terrier reliable off-leash in 10 days. I gotta share this with you, right? So I'm gonna go through it. It's kind of quick, but I'm gonna go through it. She said, first let me say that this worked in 10 days partly because of who the dog was. He was very bright and willing, just waiting for some meaningful interaction in his life. He was bold, confident, and eager. I think it would have taken more time if I was working with a shy or fearful dog. I engaged his little brain, 
He was your typical, out-of-control, mentally misfiring little toy dog who was being treated as if he were a toy, plush toy, but deep down inside, he wanted to be respected as a dog. And I'm probably going to leave out some details, but here goes. She says, day one, I started Cubby on standard Keeler point-to-point work on a 15-foot light line. This method invokes a kind of pack relationship but doesn't coerce it. The dog is allowed to learn by trial and error what works in this relationship and what doesn't. I gave him five five five-minute sessions spread across the first day. He was following me within the first session. When he was not paying attention and foraging, I stepped on the line occasionally. Stepping on the line when the dog moved ahead of me did three things. It turned him around to face me. It taught him we were connected in a non-confrontational and subtle way. And dogs don't like surprises, so he began to inhibit his natural impulses a bit and started to look for me especially when he was ahead of me. Sometimes it was just a slight turn of his head, a subtle look back, what I call a check-in. During these initial sessions, there was no conversation, except I did a verbal marker, yes, whenever the dog offered me a check-in or direct eye contact. I don't pet and I don't babble, just yes as I move along. The second day, I reviewed the long line work and then introduced various distractions in short sessions in various locations. I would walk the dog toward the distraction, started with less intensity, and worked up to more. The same day, I started to target train Cubby to follow a dowel rod with peanut butter on it, mostly to save my back, and I began to shape the front sit. I lured him into position with a stick. Later that same day, he learned to look for the target. I transferred the target to my hand and just used my hand signal. Immediately before I delivered the food, or later praise and petting and play, I labeled that front sit as the dog sits by saying, Cubby, come, in exactly the same rhythm, cadence, tone, and pitch that I will eventually use to call the dog from a distance. I think that's an important bridging factor. It helps the dog connect the dots. I get two to three successful trials, then I give him a mental and physical break. They need downtime to process. I don't drill, but I do accumulate a lot of repetitions during the course of the day in these little tiny micro sessions. Cubby was six months old. And it took a little time to build up his attention span. After a few moments of rest, the dog is allowed to sniff, look around, be a dog on the long line. I'd run the sequence again, breaking it up with a little more focused walking on the long, uh, walking on the long line work. By the way, the dog knows the difference between resting and working without a verbal cue because I get to rest too during breaks. The rests are helpful as you get older. (laughs) Okay, by the time the dog understood that it could relax on the long line but should check in with me fairly often in case I decide to stop moving or walk in another direction. Once I've introduced the distractions, it becomes especially important to Cubby's to Cubby to check in with me because when he's distracted, I become the least predictable and was most likely to start off in the opposite direction. Those check-ins ranged from slight head turns to stop, turn, and look. Remember, I tried to mark those check-ins, yes, so the dog knows I did some, that it did something I approve of. The distractions become the cues to pay more attention. For those of you unfamiliar with Keeler longline work, if the dog goes east, you go west. When they get to the end of the line, they too are going west. Nothing personal. It surprises them, and it's not associated with you, but with the distraction. Coming to you brings comfort and relief. 
Once Cubby made this decision consciously, looked at a distraction, but chooses to follow me, I marked his decision and on occasion gave him a treat or a bit of attention. Third, third through the fifth day, she writes, was a repeat of day day two, except I tried to work in as many different locations as time allowed. I lived by school, so I had plenty of noise and distraction right behind my back fence during research, uh, recess, long line work, and started the recall with the verbal cue and then the target signal once he turned. I generally call when the dog is distracted, so it has to turn away from the distraction in order to come. Lots of confirmation on his way in. Yes, good job, good boy, as long as he's focused. I'm his cheerleader. Front sit with a verbal and target signal, food reduced to about 10%. He really loved attention, petting, and getting to play with a toy. Keeping his paycheck kept him interested. She says, I worked on a few other skills during this time. Pattern, housebreaking, loose leash, walking, placing to a bed, down, waiting at, uh, to use exits, right, during this time, etc. Day six to eight, she worked on a loose leash. Um, she had now put him on finer string and did tag him with a hacky sack, a little beanbag version, a few times and stepped on the line when he ignored me. Other occasions she called him with that specific sounding cubby cum. in that vocal pattern and tugged him sharply around within one second of the call, then praised him all the way in as he traveled to the front. He really patterned off that one, especially the second timing sequence, consequence, and he started beating the tug regularly. I was able to call him off when he was chasing my dogs by using that distinctive voice pattern. Days 9 to 10, transition to him to fishing line attached to a fishing rod. No kidding, don't laugh. She said it was a little hard to reel him in, so I mostly used it to check his forward motion by setting the hook. Not an actual hook for you literalists, just stopping him with the reel break when he ignored my recall. The last day I went to a six-foot drag line starting out in controlled space, worked recalls back up to the stronger temptations. Awfully, she was about 95% reliable, so we checked to keep him on the drag line, or elected to keep him on the drag line with supervision. In some, she said, I don't believe in leaving little dogs unattended. Where he lives, if the coyotes don't eat him, the hawks or the owls will. The presence of the line for now is his connection, a reminder of the conditioning we established through the use of all the line work. The owner has to go through the sequence from long line to drag line daily. Cubby has been home for three weeks, and the only time he uh, wandered off and left the unfenced two-acre yard was when the kids decided to turn him loose from the deck and did not keep an eye on him. He was offline, got stuck when his coat got caught in a bramble bush. Thankfully, the owners found him before the coyotes did. I'm finding that the take-home training is only as good as the cooperation and support in the home. The mom handler doesn't get much cooperation from her family, so I suggested a family talk about not sabotaging the training and making this cute little dog pay the price with his life. It's been really hard to get them involved. But Cubby was a lot of fun, very responsive, intelligent, and willing. We quickly developed a good relationship. I don't know if this process would work for every dog, but it sure worked well for Cubby. So 
there's a little overview of it's possible to achieve great things in small spaces, short spaces, um, working with a dog in ways that I described at the top of the show, right? Knowing what methods to pursue, which things to abandon, having a good-sized toolbox, knowing what responses from the dog you need to really uh, work on and which ones you can safely ignore, and um, knowing at each moment what you want that final thing to look like. I was trying to describe that by making reference to um, maybe a favorite meal that you've prepared or the uncanny ability of your grandmother from whom you learned to make that meal. Grandmas often have the ability and the experience to open the oven, look at something bubbling in a casserole dish, and either tell you it's exactly where it needs to be at this point in the cooking process, or being able to look at that ingredients, set of ingredients that you put in that in that casserole dish and tell you what you forgot, right? <laughs> or that it doesn't look like it's supposed to look at this point in the cooking process. And usually they can tell you exactly why, right? My grandmother was genius with that when it came to baking. Oh my goodness. She could open the oven and go, oh no, uh-uh, you left something out of that cake. Or here's why these cookies are going to be burned on the bottom. And uh, it wasn't because she spent a lot of time studying all that in a chemistry class, that's for sure, right? There is no substitute for that kind of experience, and that's where cooking becomes an art. And as I tried to suggest at the beginning of our time together this week, dog training is an art as well. All right, y'all. Here we are, another half hour behind us. Um, as always, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for communicating with me about what you hear on the program. I hear from listeners every so often. I appreciate that. And don't go anywhere. You don't want to leave us anyway, right? It's KZUM. Celebration's coming up. And uh, there's always good more stuff, more good stuff. Good more, more good coming around the bend uh, here at KZUM. And tomorrow night kicks off Stransky. Y'all come out. Come out to the park. Little Pangea. It'll be good. It'll be good. It'll be good. And uh, KZUM gathers are the most fun anyway. So they're more fun if you're there. So come and be with us and uh, celebrate all that KZUM has to offer. And until next week, I will uh, wish you well. Have fun with your dogs. And stay tuned right here on KZUM, KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. Take care.